Welcome back to Lectures with Mr. Judy. I'm Mr. Judy. Today's lecture is titled Differing Paths, the Presidencies of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson's. We're going to split this into a few different parts, talk about the rise of political parties, the election of Adams and his presidency, the election of Jefferson and his presidency, and then really Jefferson's ideal of what America should look like. We'll talk a little bit about the Louisiana Purchase and just kind of what he feels the the way that government power should be dispersed. And then we'll talk about, well, what's the whole reason why we even talk about Jefferson and Adams? Because I've got a nice little take on it that I hope you'll enjoy. So let's start with the rise of political parties. All right. During Washington's presidency, there were different coalitions built within his administration. And the point of the coalition or these temporary alliances among these politicians was to specifically sway George Washington to one side or the other. And we touched on this in class where Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton are really going to be the two faces of the, the different sides where, for example, in the French Revolution, both of the men disagree on how we, how the United States should then pursue its relationship with France. Jefferson wanted to help France out and cut the ties with Great Britain, become a little bit more independent and really start to open up the marketplace for trade. Whereas Alexander Hamilton said, no, we should, we should continue to help the British. We should make sure that we're there. They're our biggest supplier. They have the biggest Navy. And frankly, we're not ready to really piss the British off and to sour our relations. So Madison is going to kind of enter the fray on the side of Thomas Jefferson. And from the thoughts of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, we get the Democrat-Republican Party. And this was primarily built up of farmers and Southerners, supporters of France, people who preferred a small government, and and in a lot of ways just, you know, needed a face to grab onto that, that just didn't seem to rock the boat too much. On the other side, John Adams, vice president, begins to assert his political thought, and it ten, tends to be closer to what Alexander Hamilton believes. So from these two, we get the Federalist Party. It is going to be very short-lived, but the Federalist Party was, as we talk about in history, the literal opposite of the Democrat Republicans. The Federalists included people like social elites. They typically came from more of the middle states, but especially in the north, right, New England. They preferred ties to Britain, and they want a bigger government to help direct society, take care of society. And remember, this is also a time period where people aren't exactly well off. We're still trying to figure out how to pay for the Revolutionary War. And with Adams and Hamilton, the whole idea of, hey, the government is here to help you, you know, really starts there. And people will eventually begin to turn to the government to kind of help aid their problems. So George Washington decides after two terms, I'm done. He gives us farewell address. Beware of political parties. They're really bad. So let's find out how. All right, the election of John Adams. Really what we're talking about here is big government and the problems that a big government can have as far as control. So 
John Adams narrowly defeats Thomas Jefferson for the presidency and the, in a completely different time, um, the person with the second most electoral votes was going to be installed as the vice president. So you have John Adams, a Federalist, with Thomas Jefferson, a Democrat-Republican, as the vice president, and there is going to be a significant amount of infighting between these two. Alexander Hamilton is going to retire, and this was both a positive and a negative for John Adams. A positive was that Alexander Hamilton was no longer around to really dominate the political thought. John Adams thought without Hamilton around, he could kind of operate more and really start to take this idea of the Federalist Party further. However, the negative was is that it created a rift in the party because many people within the Federalist mindset were not totally ready to trust John Adams. They thought, hey, he was great during the Revolutionary War in that time frame, but this might be a man past his prime, and we're not totally sure. Alexander Hamilton is our guy. And so even though Hamilton has retired and he's out of the administration, many people still go to Alexander Hamilton for help. And it really starts to create problems for John Adams because not only is he fighting Jefferson, but now he's also fighting within his own party as well. One thing that really helps John Adams during his presidency is the rising tensions with France. The French Revolution is just this whirlwind of chaos and the United States is thrown right into the middle of it. There's the violent turn with the directory, which ultimately leads to Napoleon. And as this is getting set up, France begins to kind of become a bad guy on the world stage and yet is still demanding the United States' allegiance. The United States is trying to remain as neutral as possible from the advice given from George Washington. And France doesn't react particularly well to America's neutrality. The French begin to seize American ships for the lack of support. And we do have a little bit of period of impressment. And in order to smooth this over, John Adams sends some, some diplomats to France to smooth things over and just kind of say, hey, like, leave us alone. You know, we can work on a compromise. We feel like you guys are just a little bit in a bad place right now and you need to find you, but it doesn't mean you have to lash out against us. And so this is what is be known as the XYZ affair because as Adams' diplomats reach France, they are told that in order to talk to the leaders that there needs to be a bribe put forth and the diplomats kind of look at each other and say, well, we didn't hear about a bribe, nor do we think we should pay it. And it actually becomes this international spectacle, more so for the United States and France than anybody else, because nobody else really cared. But for us, we look really good in a sense of we're standing for our morals. We refuse to take or give these bribes. We're going to get access to the government the right way. And if they're not going to play nice with us, then we're not going to play nice with them. And this actually looks really, really good for John Adams. It looks like he's a man that's standing up for his morals. It looks like a man who's not going to be bullied and not be pushed around on the world stage, which is kind of a nice relief after his previous negotiations with Britain um, upon the writing of the Constitution. And so the public really does start to seem to at least be open to the idea of Adams. But he's about to drop some policies that is going to turn people away from him. And those are known as the Alien and Sedition Acts. Now, 
The founding fathers did not anticipate a multi-party state, right? They thought it was going to be one party and just the best leaders from that party are going to become our leaders in our nation. Well, Adams realizes what's going on. He realizes there's a, a clash in his own party. He realizes that Jefferson is more popular than him and is starting to draw in more and more supporters, especially in the South. And at this point in time, if you can control the South, you're probably going to control the entire United States government. And in response to this rising popularity of the Democrat and Republicans, John Adams passes the Alien and Naturalization Acts. So at the heart of it, it extends the rule that says if you're from another country and you come into the United States, you want to be a citizen. Instead of five years for that, we're going to make it 14. And this also orders the imprisonment or deportation of immigrants during a war. And it doesn't have to be a big war. It just has to be something small. And then Adams, if if so prompted, could actually start putting people in prison. Now, the whole reason why this is a big deal is because you move citizenship from five years to 14. If you have a war, which like France taking our ships could potentially put us at war. Now you can start to do take action against immigrants who may be on a precipice of voting, right? And so you're potentially, t- or what Adams is doing is taking away potential voters. And it does not look good. All these immigrants are now going to move to the Democrat-Republican Party. The Federalists look like elite snobs. It is an exclusive group. And people really start to turn on them. But then we come to the Sedition Act. And the Sedition Act fines or imprisons anyone for writing, publishing, or speaking things against the government. And this obviously is going to come in direct conflict with the First Amendment as well. But really what this is seen as now is a way for the Federalists to keep power by not allowing the Democrat Republicans to to criticize the government, to say anything openly about the government. It's just kind of a, a gag order in a way. And so states do fight back. There are some documents, the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions that were written in secret and they were written in secret so nobody would go to jail. We now know that they were written by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, the leaders of the Democrat Republican Party, because of course they were. And and there's going to be a fight over whether a state can nullify a law, a federal law, because this seems like a bad federal law. It makes sense that if a state can nullify it. And that same idea, right? The same idea that maybe a state can decide not to follow a federal law is obviously going to come back with the Civil War and be at the heart of the Civil War as well. And so Adams' presidency, foreign policy-wise, seems very, very good. Domestic policy is very, very bad. And that's worth noting because that's how Adams loses the election. That's why 1800 goes the way of Jefferson is because people don't feel like Adams is there for them as an average person. Most people feel like Adams is there for the social elites and to take care of those people who do international business, right? But for me and my farm, Adams is not my guy. So now we move on over to Jefferson. All right, Jefferson is one of the most popular presidents 
in the history of our country and for a lot of reasons why, right? And probably the biggest one that's not like, oh yeah, Louisiana Purchase, you know, type related is the fact that Jefferson comes in with a very clear vision of what he wants America to look like. And he learned from his losses serving under President Washington. And he felt like too much power had been taken from the people. And he wants to restore this sense of pride in America. And so he says, I'm going to give power back. I'm going to allow the average person to make more decisions and to have a little bit more leeway in their life and what they decide to do. And it's going to be weird because he this is his kind of platform in a way, right? Like, I want you to have greater control over your life as long as you want to do exactly what I want you to do. So Jefferson's presidency, we have three big risks that he's going to take. And this, remember, most of, most of the time when we take risk in life, we're looking at low risk, low reward type situations, right? Like, should I have Captain Crunch in the morning? Or should I have Pop-Tarts? Or should I have toast? And that's a really low risk, low reward. We want to try and put ourselves in a low risk, high reward situation. And we want to try to avoid high risk, low reward situations. And Jefferson's going to take a big swing with the idea of, hey, if these three risks really play out, I'm going to be remembered as a great president. This is somebody who does care about his legacy. He might tell people openly, it's not about me, it's not about my legacy. But this is a man who is incredibly learned. He's a philosopher and he knows the way that these risks go and these policies that he's about to take. If they go his way, he's going to be remembered as one of the best. And he is. All right. So let's take a look at this first one, the movement of people. All right, the movement of people. Let's take a look at what America looks like at this point in time. Two-thirds of all young people in the United States. So we're going to say young people 25 or under, right? Two-thirds of all people 25 and under live within 50 miles of the Atlantic coast. All right, and that's from top to bottom. 50 miles of the Atlantic coast. Two-thirds of all young people live there. Now, that's going to cause a lot of overcrowding. But you're also looking at what, or you have to ask, what type of jobs are these people going to get? And they're going to go where the money is, right? Shipping, industry, right? But they're also in smaller towns and areas. Um, Only 3% of the population in the United States actually lives in a city at this point. Now, in 2019, we know that over 50%, you know, well over half live in cities. But only 3% lived in cities at the moment. So you're looking at a lot of small establishments that are going to grow and have that chance to grow. Speaking of that, in 1790, the population of the United States was 3.9 million. In 1800, so just in 10 years, it goes from 3.9 to 5.3 million. That's a pretty big boom for America at this point in time, where we're not totally sure how big the land is. We're not totally sure where we want to inhabit. And with all the people who are making babies within 50 miles of the Atlantic coast, things are going to start to get kind of kind of tight in a hurry. Um, four out of five families are farmers. 95, 94% of all people live in communities of 2,500 people or less, right? So again, a lot of little establishments that are going to be forced to start incorporating among each other. This is Jefferson's big idea, though. 
America is centered around ports and farms and have little communication and trade with each other. How can we start to connect these people more? And he has a really big piece of evidence to help him. We've got to connect people, right? Because only 20% of the produce that farms actually grew and harvested, 20% actually leaves the local community. And if you learn in your economics class, you need to be able to sell your stuff, right? And certain communities are really, really going to struggle with this. But once we start to become more connected, now we're going to start to we're going to start to be able to really make some good money, right? So Jefferson preaches self-sufficiency, right? This is his solution to how we're going to make things connected. He he says, growth is going to take care of it in a natural way where we're going to start to come together. But what's going to need to happen is we need to be self-sufficient. And he believes in these small farming communities. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to tell everybody what to do. I'm just going to try and make sure that they have avenues. We're going to start to build roads, right? And we're going to start to use canals and ports. Um, Well, maybe not so much canals, but we are going to start to use ports and rivers a little bit more to connect people. But he's going to let local and state governments determine what is best for the people. And he's going to really kind of kibosh the idea of big national policies. And he says, this is what it is. You're living in these little communities, little communities, you know what's best for you. You take care of yourself. Just try and talk with others and play play nice with others. It will help you. And people bought into his vision. And of course, it worked out. All right. Thomas Jefferson, as I mentioned, he wants to cut or he's a fan of small government. So he's going to cut funding to non-essential programs. And one of the things that he wants to do is he wants to start getting people to go west. Right. This is his big idea like farming, a nation of farmers, right? Let's go out, let's spread out, and it'll all, it'll all be better. He wants to get these young people away from the seaports, and he wants to start having the rest of America just settled. And so this is where we get to the expansion of land. And, oh man, Jefferson. Whoo, buddy. Yeah, let's talk about you, dear sir. Okay, so why I just brought that up about Jefferson, the fact that we need to talk for just a moment. Let's go back to Hamilton and the bank, right? Alexander Hamilton says there needs to be a national bank of the United States. And Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson says, no, 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 I don't think so. Because it's not in the Constitution. You are not allowed to go beyond the Constitution. That's why it was set up, right? And Hamilton justifies this is why we need a bank. He bends Washington's ear. Washington says, all right, thumbs up. You're right. Make the bank. And Jefferson took this as a big loss. But what it did teach him was to consider the alternative. Maybe the Constitution doesn't really have everything. And so in government, we talk about we talk about interpretations of the Constitution. And there's a question of, do you interpret the Constitution as a living document or as original intent? Right. Original intent, meaning the Constitution is meant to be used how the founding fathers wanted it. If it needs to be changed, then we need to create a law or an amendment to change it. But otherwise, let the Constitution be your guiding conscience. That's the original intent. The living 
breathing constitution people will say the constitution is constantly evolving is changing and you need to interpret it for the day that you're in because not everything was we weren't able to see everything in 1787 1788 like you need to be able to see what the constitution means for you in 2019 and while this is obviously going to create a lot of different opinions and people are going to you know constantly ask well what does that even mean i mean to be honest we don't really totally know what the founding fathers you know meant with the constitution as well the information is a lot more limited than most people would think but this is what jefferson is an original intent guy right the constitution doesn't say it i'm not going to do it because that's the way that i am okay he takes a look he's now the president and it's a mindset difference right when you're the one in the power you look at things differently right when i was in school did i like school sure i love school that's why i'm a teacher and and i enjoyed a lot of parts about it. but of course there were certain teachers that i didn't particularly care for and i didn't understand why they did the things that they did now that i'm a teacher i've had to learn a lot of failure in my time as a teacher because I see things differently now that I'm the one in front of the class. Now the one that I'm creating the lessons and that I'm responsible for your learning. Like it's a big, big deal. Right. And I think that that's what Jefferson went through when he was looking at his, his country. Cause he's kind of going around and he's saying, wait a minute, we got the British around. We have the French around. We have the Spanish around. We have other European powers like the Dutch, you know, that have a presence in our hemisphere. Like, we should probably start start getting everybody else out of our business because it feels too crowded. And not to mention the most dominating power at the time, which was Mexico as far as land went and, and riches and whatnot. They're not too far away either, right? There's a little bit of a buffer zone between us and, the, and Mexico at the current time. But he, Jefferson's looking around saying, hey, we... We, we can't have all these potential enemies around us. And, and so in what has been now called the greatest real estate deal of all time, although I don't know, I might, I might argue that Seward's purchase of Alaska might rival us. But anyway, Thomas Jefferson purchases the Louisiana Territory from Napoleon Bonaparte. And it's kind of a win-win. We get the land, we take away... A potential enemy napoleon gets the money to continue his wars and it seems like everybody is you know pretty happy with the with the arrangement and yet jefferson's critics are going to point to him and say but you went against the constitution right because you're the one who said if it's not in there you can't do it yet the whole idea of acquiring land in the Constitution isn't exactly the clearest idea. And when I say it, I mean, I don't, it's like not even in there, right? And who is supposed to acquire land and how? And so that's Jefferson's card where he goes, I didn't go against my morals because I technically didn't go against the Constitution. I just, uh, you know, decided to kind of make it up as I go along, right? Washington did it. Adams did it. You got to let me do it. And but whatever, right? Now we have a bunch more land. We have west of the Appalachian Mountains. We're going to get, you know, the Northwest. We're going to get some of the Midwest. And we just purchased this huge, ginormous chunk of land. 
And Jefferson says, go, go ye out, be ye farmers, right? Go start to settle the land. And man, this is just a big boom for us. A lot of it is because of the land, right? And the land is, you remember, um, you know, people say like with real estate location, 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 talking about where a house is or a business is situated um, and the things that are around it can drive the price of that property up or down right for us just getting that land was going to equal money because we find so many resources and things in the land that it's going to actually become just such a huge benefit for us it's not just the piece of dirt it's what's below the piece of dirt in the terms of precious metals it's a it's on what's on top of the piece of dirt with the timber and with the animal pelts like beaver pelts are going to become a real big thing for us for a while and it really seems that most people start to turn a blind eye to what Jefferson is doing because, hey, why worry about it if it's, if it's working so well? So Louisiana Purchase goes really, really well. And that brings us to the last part of Thomas Jefferson's presidency, the clarification of government power. Jefferson realizes he's in the driver's seat. He's more popular. His party is bigger, but yet he's not in complete control, right? It's not like there is, there isn't, you know, somebody waiting in the wings to take him down. And so he realizes that moderate factions are going to happen. And as a way to kind of curb this out of the posts that he has in, in government, um, at the current point in time, it looks like there's about 290. He's going to put 158 Democrat Republicans in those posts, right? 158, which means he's going to save 132 Federalists. And this is kind of that olive branch, right? Of let's build coalitions when let's struggle and let's grapple with our thoughts and let's make a better America through better ideas. But it's going to come at a price though. The case of the midnight judges. As John Adams is leaving office, he wants to make sure as many Federalists are in position, positions in the government as he possibly can. And he appoints some judges literally at the last hour of his presidency. That's why they're called the Midnight Judges, right? Incoming Secretary of State James Madison gets the leftover letters from Adams that says, please go deliver these letters. These are going to be our new judges and our government. And James Madison just simply says, no, I absolutely refuse to do what you just asked me. And one of those people that didn't get his letter was William Marbury. And he knows that he was going to get it. So he decides to sue James Madison and he demands, I will be appointed as a judge. Right? So now we have the Supreme Court case of Marbury versus Madison. And it doesn't just pull in Federalists versus Democrats. This is really about government and government power. And so the court gives itself the power of judicial review. Judicial review means to review acts by the executive and legislative branches. And by doing so, by reviewing those acts, they can, the court can then say, your act is unconstitutional and here is why. That's important because now that the courts can get rid of an existing law, and through its decision, basically write the new law. So I want to jump forward, right? Um, 
to to my favorite court case of Tinker versus Des Moines School District, where some students were protesting the Vietnam War and the school suspended them. And there was a lawsuit and it continually goes back and forth. Eventually gets to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says, you think you know what the First Amendment means. But let us tell you what it means. Because these laws that exist that say speech is only verbal, you're, all, you're missing half of the other part of speech. Speech can be symbolic. It can be expressive. It can be the clothes that we wear. It can be the gestures with our hand for, you know, good or bad, um, for example. And the court said, you, we're going to tell you that if these laws exist, you're going to have to change them, right? Brown versus Board of Education and desegregating schools, same exact thing right? You states, you have a law in place that segregate schools. Now you can't, you can't have anymore because the Supreme court in its decision said that you can't, right? And so the court says Marbury has a right to his commission, but we're never going to force James Madison to give William Marbury his commission. So William Marbury actually never becomes a judge despite pseudo winning this case, right? And this was big because now the executive branch and the legislative branch have to pay attention to what the court says, right? And they have to keep in mind, there is this other check on their power. And now the court is starting to kind of grow in its, in its power, right? But the effect of this, right? Parties can work together. Parties can work together by keeping those 132 federalists in their posts Jefferson created coalitions, and not only that, but the long-term effect, some of those Federalist flip sides become Democrat-Republicans, and what we're going to see is this period of dominance by the Democrat-Republicans in elections that leads to the dissolution of the Federalist Party. Within 20 years, there is no more Federalist Party because the Democrat-Republicans are going to dominate because of things like Jefferson building these bridges. All right, here we go. It's go home time. So what's the point of talking about these selected topics from Jefferson and Adams presidencies? Well, here's a couple ideas. Number one, we always have to talk about how big should the government be? How much control should it have over its citizens? Adams says big government. Jefferson says small government. In this point in time, Jefferson had more success with his idea but we also see other times where the idea of small government, like when we get to the Great Depression, Herbert Hoover, it's going to be a colossal failure. And big government under Franklin Roosevelt is really going to save a lot of people, right? And so there's that idea. The idea of building coalitions, right? The idea that you and I can disagree on political topics and maybe how something should be done, but that doesn't mean that we can't work together, right? And yeah, Adams kind of just goes his way and doesn't have a whole lot to do after he's president anymore. And Jefferson really takes those reins, but Jefferson extending that olive branch, you know, and learning how to work with others actually leads to more success for his party. But I want to introduce this idea, right? It's the triad theory. And it was developed primarily by Georg Friedrich Hegel and Here's the basic idea, right? History is set by a thesis. It's a straight line path. This is our lifestyle. This is our government. This is everything that we see, right? There's a thesis. Eventually, at some point, 
an antithesis is created, right? There's a disruption in our society, like a war or a famine or a depression, right? And all of a sudden, the life that we have, this thesis, is no longer our life because now this antithesis, this event, is changing our society. And so what happens is, is a thesis and an antithesis are going to battle and are going to grapple and society will be changed. And that's what we call the synthesis, right? This merging of the thesis and the antithesis to create a new thesis, right? So let me give you an example, maybe see if this helps you out, right? Ketchup is great for your fries. It's a staple. You always get asked in a drive-thru whenever you get fries. Do you want ketchup with that, right? Along comes somebody who thinks mayonnaise is a better condiment to dip your fries in, right? So at this point, ketchup is your thesis. Mayonnaise is going to be your antithesis. Eventually, somebody, and they were probably from Utah, right, decides in this madness and they're going to mix ketchup and mayonnaise. And what do we get? Fry sauce. Fry sauce is a new, that's a synthesis, right? It's the synthesis of ketchup and mayonnaise together as this reddish-orange concoction that everybody loves, and now that is the new thesis, right? Fry sauce is now the way to go. And I can tell you, somebody who moved to Utah later in my life, most people didn't know what fry sauce was, right, for the longest time. Come to Utah, and then I felt like I was almost outcasted because I didn't know what fry sauce was, right? And it was just the condiment of choice for everybody here. Since then, you know, that is now a part of my life, right? The idea of fry sauce when I go and get fries somewhere that I'm going to be asked about about that, right? Okay, historical application. This is it. And then we're going home. Adams creates the idea that big government is good and works for you. That's the thesis, right? But the disruption is bad policies like the Alien and Sedition Acts, right? Along comes Jefferson who mixes ideas of big government with things like the Louisiana Purchase and his preference of small government, right? These disruptions um, of farming and letting local governments decide more to create a better view of America, right? This agrarian, like you learn how to work with your hands. It's the American dream. You can strike it rich. You are going to be able to acquire as much wealth as you can make, right? And he sets that path for us, right? That this is our new America. It is going to be whatever you make it. And we're the country with choice. And that's where we stand at today. All right, guys, thank you for hanging out with me this time through the lecture. I hope I got through it a little faster. Um, But you guys are awesome. Thank you again for sticking with me. Adams, Jefferson, dueling ideas. And we're going to see this back and forth throughout the rest of our history. Thanks a ton. Peace, love, and hugs. Peace out.